Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today for you, we have a special edition of the programme in which we're asking, how do you build better? On the 3rd of October, the UBS Sustainability and Impact Institute publish a new white paper entitled Rethink, Rebuild, Reimagine the Untapped Opportunity and Overlooked Risk in Buildings and Structures. Two of the paper's co-authors are here to explain what this process needs to look like, from how we rethink buildings to where rebuilding is appropriate to reimagining their structures so as to best balance urban growth and sustainability. Our panellists from the UBS Sustainability and Impact Institute will discuss how these processes start with putting the needs of everyday residents and communities on a par with bringing buildings into line with net zero targets. So let's meet our guests today. William Nicole is ESG analyst at the UBS Sustainability and Impact Institute, as is his colleague, Richard Miles. It's a great pleasure to welcome William and Richard to the show. Well, Richard Miles, just to kick things off then, let's talk about... I guess the changing nature and needs of buildings over time, and there are lots of factors acting on that space, aren't there? Including some of the big uh, secular themes that we often cover on on this programme. Talk to us a little bit about what that change over time looks like when it comes to buildings. Sure, and I think what's interesting about buildings is that the, the the what we need from them, you know. Plus somewhere to work, somewhere to shelter, somewhere to sort of connect with other people. You know, those needs haven't fundamentally changed throughout time. But obviously our built environment, the way that our building environment, built environment meets those needs does change sort of, you know, fundamentally, right? So I'd say to look at a broad level, buildings are kind of about, they're a confluence of the tech that we have, our own priorities, and then structural factors like the needs of the economy. So in practice... You know, if we look back at like the first industrial revolution, we had various technological advances in industrial manufacturing and, 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 and whatnot. And that created this sort of potential and an economic need for growth in populations around factories. But the massive growth that we saw, say, in London wouldn't have been possible without other advances in food production. So you could feed all those workers that were moving from the field to the factory um, and health and sanitation advances that mitigated outbreaks of disease. So you know, if we look through history, cities never really grew much beyond a million people for that, for, for that reason. But London added something like 5.2 million people in just 90 years in the, in the 19th century. So the way that the cities and the built environment evolves is very much sort of a, a product of these big sort of secular forces you know, another one might be the the development of the car which allows sort of urban sprawl and sort of the rise of the suburbs now obviously anticipating our future needs of decades in advance is not the easiest thing um but where we think is a good place to start is with so today's mega trends so we, we look at four which we believe have kind of acute relevance for the built environment first of those being urbanization growing urban populations contrasting with declining rural ones demographic change with many countries facing sort of aging populations and declining workforces the fourth industrial revolution which you know is going to sort of require sort of fewer in-person interactions and, and, and perhaps less demand for, for offices and of course you know the big one which is climate change we need our, our buildings to decarbonize and we also need them to be able to adapt to changing weather patterns so the upshot of that is that all of these ongoing changes mean that a static building environment is not going to be able to accommodate our future needs so we're very much thinking that the emphasis should be on building flexibility into designs facilitating usage change, upgrades, extensions, refurbishments, so that adapting the building stock to future demands doesn't require 
demolishing and starting again with all the environmental and carbon costs that that entails. Yeah, as Richard was saying, there's these these four broad mega trends, right, that we think are shaping what future buildings could look like. And as we look forward, we think that by 2050, the total building floor around the world is going to increase by about 75%. What does that really mean? It's the equivalent of adding the surface area of Paris every week for the next 25 to 30 years. So we know there's going to be a lot more buildings, but we're not really sure what they're going to really look like. And the framework we we have for the report is that buildings will generally always meet a certain set of fundamental needs, but how they meet those needs will change over time. And we think these four mega drivers or mega trends, sorry, of urbanization, demographic change, fourth industrial revolution and climate change uh, are what is going to shape what buildings look like in the future. So that's the backdrop to the white paper, if you like. Richard Miles, back to you. Tell us more about what you and the team were looking to document then with this piece of research. So I think the key thing is that um, this is maybe one of the sort of slightly less sort of sexy aspects of, uh, of the climate transition and the climate debate, but it's an incredibly important one. Buildings account for 40% roughly of our, of our emissions globally, 28% of that coming from the sort of existing building stock, um, 9% from construction. So if we're going to have any chance... Of, of meeting our sort of Paris climate goals and, and 2050 net zero targets, we really need to find a way of getting those emissions um, down and we need to do that in a, in a sort of ra- rapid, rapid form. Um, so in terms of um, the, the report, we, we wanted to sort of split that problem down into sort of three or four areas. The first of all, looking at our existing emissions. So um, how, how do we bring down that 28% number? Um, and that's really where we sort of talk about this, the need for a retrofit revolution. We need to sort of um, go into existing buildings. We can't knock them all down. Um, that would just be a, 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 ter- that would be a, a, a terrible for increasing the emissions from construction. So we need to kind of try and um, insulate and retrofit and, and bring the energy efficiency of those buildings right up in order to sort of make them net zero ready. And then we look at a, a building. Um, we'll get into that, come into that a little, a, little, a little bit further in, in due course. Need for innovation there. We have sort of a huge amount of emissions from things like concrete, cement, and sort of different building techniques that need to be um, sort of scaled and rolled out rolled out there. And then we look at sort of the, the reimagining aspect, which is that, you know, sometimes retrofitting isn't enough. We can't be too prescriptive about how we decide sort of we make the building environment sort of fit for purpose because it's not just about climate you know people have to live in these buildings and so you have to kind of balance climate concerns with the kind of social social aspects and so there we were looking at right when you know if maybe a building isn't fit for purpose in its current form but perhaps there is a conversion opportunity here or perhaps you know sometimes it is actually necessary to 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 knock down and, and rebuild better but and also increasingly, and this is one of you know, really interesting, particularly in developed markets where we're seeing falling populations and sort of ongoing urbanisation. There are going to be times when we actually just want to decommission these buildings and rewild. Those are the sort of three sort of angles that we look at uh, look, look at in, in this report. And then the final chapter is a sort of you know what can what can different stakeholders, what can governments do, what can finance do, what can banks like UBS do in order to sort of achieve the goals that we have. Well, yeah, and we'll come back to the uh, delivery of some of these ambitions uh, in a moment. Um, William, let me bring you in, though, here, because I guess one of the things that really struck me from the the report is this idea that there is an attitudinal shift required 
to acknowledge that there is no fundamental, there's no inherent barrier to decarbonising most of those emissions that, that Richard's been talking about. And in, as with so many of these very profound questions, often it's the attitude maybe that needs to change first. Yes, completely. Um, I mean, we looked at some investment estimates as part of the report and the overall kind of dollar cost, if you look at all the technologies that we have today to decarbonise existing buildings, works out about 11% of current uh, investment in real estate. So the dollar cost is is high, but it's not so high that it endangers basically decarbonising our building stock today. And as Richard mentioned, we have a lot of the technologies that we need today to do that and bring emissions down, um, particularly on the operational emissions side. So emissions that buildings emit just through existing and and running um, through things like consuming energy um, and that kind of thing. There are some technologies that are still in the pipeline and we don't expect them to emerge in, in the real estate market until the late 2020s to maybe the mid 2030s. And that's things like reducing emissions in the materials that are used to build buildings. So things like cement and steel that are very carbon intensive. But considering we have all the technologies today to do to reduce the vast amount of building emissions, so those operational emissions, it does imply that maybe there is more of an attitudinal um, issue today that is, is preventing decarbonisation. Well, yeah, and alongside that, and I guess, the, again, a, an understandable but not acceptable short-termism from some of the stakeholders, there are also issues with things like inadequate data around this space and also about the incentivization to make progress. Perhaps you can both talk a little bit about that because, you know, it's something we come back to when we talk about sustainable practices in a whole range of different disciplines. You know, we don't really know what the sort of acceptable green premiums are. We can't always necessarily agree on what the data points are. And therefore, it makes it much more difficult from a sort of regulatory and incentivization standpoint. Maybe you could both reflect on that problem a little bit for us. Getting getting this right from an incentive standpoint is is really, you know, a huge part of the whole ball game. And at the moment, we have Green premium, there's a lot of green premium research out there. A lot of people sort of trying to work out what, what the level of it is. Does it even exist? Um, and I think intuitively, we kind of know that as regulations are tightening and, and energy efficiency standards are ri- arising, there is going to be a sort of from a regulatory standpoint, there is going to be this pressure for you know green buildings to take precedence and for those values to go up and plus we're also seeing on the demand side you know people want to live in in greener buildings because the bills are lower and and they're just generally um a a better experience um to be in those however the fact that there is so much um, so much research still going on does sort of show that there isn't really the level of confidence in the green building premium and the trajectory that it's going to be on to actually achieve the goals that we have so i think what we would sort of suggest is that the, it's, it's incredibly important to try and make sure that we increase confidence in that green building premium. So one of the difficulties with it, for example, is that you can't disentangling the green building aspects from other aspects of renovation and refurbishment is quite often quite actually quite difficult. And so there isn't necessarily the confidence among building owners that if they put a load of solar panels on their roof and insulate the fabric of the building, they're actually going to get rewarded for that in terms of their their rental yields and, and capital values. And I think until we can kind of get to a point where that confidence is is at a 
reasonable level, we're not actually going to be able to solve this area and we're not going to be able to scale retrofits to the level that they need to be. William, let me just bring you in though on that point. And I guess we're talking about regulation. Again, in the piece, you often talk about the, the carrots and sticks required. If we look at the role of, of governments here, we need to disincentivize short-termism. You know, it's plain that Richard's already spoken about that. But I guess there is this balance between you know, penalising buildings and developments that are underperforming, but you need to balance that with positive incentivization, the carrots, if you like, particularly if we're talking about trying to catalyse the level of private investment that's also required here. Yeah, completely. And in, in the report, just to, just to flag, it's not all a, a role of governments. In the report, we emphasise the need for a whole value chain approach because the market failures that exist in the real estate market today require actions from... In, stakeholders across the whole value chain and there is an irreplaceable role for governments but equally there's an irreplaceable role for like finance as well for example because of banks like UBS's cross value chain position and the fact that we plug in capital across the whole market landscape so we're in quite a powerful position to help I guess correct those market failures that exist today. I think if we forget that these buildings are actually used by people to live and work a good example is like if you're forcing people to keep sort of you know, old buildings with low ceilings and no, no natural light and, and which are very unattractive to live in and, and work in. And you say, well, because of embodied carbon emission concerns, we're not going to let you knock that down and start again. Or where there are opportunities perhaps for, you know, big co-benefits. Like, for example, say one that we mentioned in the report is this um, development by a company called Stories, where they, they've got an existing homeless shelter of two stories and they want to knock it down and rebuild an eight-storey homeless shelter with a 20-storey apartment block. So there, there's a clear sort of social and, and local area benefit to that development. And if you were sort of so concerned about keeping buildings at all costs then I think that you would miss out on some of those. And I think the second point here is that, you know, you want to make sure that you retain local support and at the aggregate level support for sort of sustainability goals. And if you're forcing people to live in buildings they don't want to live in, then not only are those buildings essentially going to fall into obsolescence before you would, would like them to, but you're also not going to bring, bring people on board along with your sort of broader sustainability goals. Yeah, and William, perhaps let's bring it back because we've already touched on this idea of the power of the financial sector broadly um, and, of course, UBS, such a consequential player specifically. Can we talk a bit more about the role of, of the financial sector? I know we've touched upon it because it's developing fast, but it is still only nascent. And there's some interesting points, again, in the report, uh, green real estate bonds, for example, and mortgage-backed securities only making up a pretty small proportion of conventional bond issuance at, at this stage, a new mortgage loan. So there is this cross-value chain proposition, which you, which you mentioned earlier. Can you just tell us a bit more about what that actually looks like? You know, the sort of the nuts and bolts of, of how better finance can really be one of the key drivers of change in this area. Finance has this cross-value chain position in, in most markets because it plugs capital in at different links in the chain, right? And there's different flavours of capital which it can use to meet different means and promote different kind of sustainability outcomes. And we divide finance's role in the report really into two broad buckets. One is better finance and, and then one is better value chain. So drilling into the first one, better finance, we see the role really in, in three areas. Um, the first is just in growing and aligning sort of green investment products. So as you mentioned, things like green mortgages because of this cross-value chain position and, and the flow of capital into different areas of the value chain, how you design these products can help promote greener buildings and 
disincentivize non-green buildings. So that's a really important area, I think, for finance. Um, the second is aligning information flows, and this relates back to that information failure that I noted earlier. And again, because of finance's cross-value chain position, it can promote disclosure across the whole real estate market and ensure that those disclosures are very comparable, which is really important for real estate because the global market is made up of lots of really localized sub-markets with very different practices. So ensuring there's some kind of global consistency between them, I think, is a, a key point to ensure that as buildings decarbonize, it's in line with the trajectory towards the Paris Agreement. And then the final area of this sort of improving finance, better finance piece, it's about adjusting horizons and, and how finance, I guess, approaches valuations and really ensuring they try and reflect material transition risks where they're relevant, because we see these risks as, as potentially growing. Um, for example, as regulations kick in and in some markets you see kind of minimum energy performance ratings um, ratcheting up towards 2030, which, which could be a material transition risk for, for some buildings. And finally, the, the sort of better value chain area and role of finance is really around, I guess, ensuring that there are effective conversations going on throughout the value chain and, and finance can facilitate these because of its cross-market position. And that involves things like connecting the dots between different stakeholders. So UBS, for example, has this quite innovative uh, mortgage renovation calculator, which helps connect residential customers in Switzerland with the provider of a calculator so they can help size the potential cost of renovation. And that's quite key because I think everyday residential mortgage holders don't really chat to, um, you know, the valuers of, of retrofit costs. So providing that tool just upfront helps to really help facilitate those conversations across the value chain. And then we've also got points about sharing best practices and forming private partnerships to really help capital find those green building opportunities where um, they're present, but they might not have access to capital today. William, just perhaps a final thought. Uh, obviously, there's this very pronounced focus on addressing the climate crisis. And looking through this prism of buildings and structures, there's maybe not so much of a focus on biodiversity itself. Can you talk to us a bit about how nature is integrated into the thinking here? Yeah, of course, nature tends to be the less focused on area when you're talking about sustainable building and, and climate tends to dominate. And this is, I guess, maybe a factor of the fact that we see nature being squeezed out of cities over time. I mean, there's an interesting stat in the report about how when you get a 10% increase in the density of a city, you see a 3% fall in green canopy cover. And we think this is largely due to how um, urban areas are essentially a big competition for space, right? And the uses that can generate the highest value tend to win. But when you have things like nature, which doesn't generate any revenue or, or, or market value, they tend to get squeezed out because their, their opportunity cost, if you like, in the urban area um, is very high. This means that if you want more, I guess, bits of nature like green trees or parks in urban areas, you really need to go back to that carrots and sticks piece because in markets, nature doesn't have a representation. So it's all about essentially incentivizing nature's inclusion through things like, for example, Malmo's urban greening factor or, I guess, better incentives through planning to include nature from the outset in building design. And that is William Nicole, And before that, Richard Miles, bringing us to the end of this special edition of the Bulletin with UBS here on Monocle Radio. Follow us at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And you can look out for more from and about the white paper from UBS from the 3rd of October. Head over to ubs.com forward slash better dash buildings. And there's even more to discover about the Institute, including some thoughts on how you can help drive sustainability at ubs.com slash sustainability dash impact dash institute. I'm Tom Edwards. This is The Bulletin with UBS. Thanks for listening.